0: Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. We're continuing our series called Blessed Are the Weird. This week's message is by Jennifer Roth. So we've been in a series on the Beatitudes, which are found in Matthew chapter 5. We've been going through the eight of them and... As you know, last week Brian mentioned in his sermon that the Beatitudes kind of turn a corner here in the middle from the first four, which really focus on us knowing our need for God. Blessed are the poor in spirit because they know their need for God. Blessed are those who mourn because when we're mourning we know our need for God. Blessed are the meek because they know their need for God and Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they know their need for God. And as we turn the corner, we turn this corner to when we know our need for God and we begin to live with that life flowing out of us, we are people who are merciful because we know our own need. And we get to talk this week about being pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And next week, that outflow of being peacemakers when we know our own need for God. And I know that we've mentioned before that who is preaching is pretty much based on the calendar. You know, what dates need to be filled and and all that. But I just have to say, I don't think this one was an accident. Because could you imagine either of these three preaching on blessed are the pure in heart? (laughs) I mean, really, right? (laughs) Actually, Rod said a few weeks ago when he was preaching blessed are the meek that we often need to preach from our weakness. And I have found that nothing has been more true been preparing to preach blessed are the pure in heart and being aware of how impure my heart can be as a matter of fact i think i relate a little bit more to saint augustine who said oh lord help me to be pure but not yet (laughs) (laughs) i think our mind jumps to pure in heart purity doing the right things And I want to tell you that this is not a sermon about doing the right things, because that's often something we try to put on externally. But this is a sermon about what does it mean to be pure in heart. And as Jesus was speaking to people on the mountain that day, which, by the way, I was in uh, Jerusalem last spring... Um, 2014 with a group of women and we were around Galilee and what they call a mountain is kind of like where Glen Creek goes up in West Salem. It's it's kind of a hill. Just saying, it's beautiful. Um, So when they were up on that hill and he was preaching, there were many things he said to them that were a surprise. Because as you remember, Steve has told us that their understanding of blessing were those who were wealthy Jewish men who were in good health. And so when he was saying blessed are the poor in spirit and those who mourn and, 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 and this list, it, a lot of those were things that they would have been going, that's blessed? That's a blessing? And yet on this one, it would not have been a surprise to them. Because all through the law and the prophets, the scriptures that they were given are instructions on the heart. If we look back at Deuteronomy, one of the books of the law, we see that there's a whole bunch of verses that, that relate to instructions on the heart. Chapter 4 says, Look for God with all your hearts." Another one says love the Lord with all your heart. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Obey the Lord with all your heart. Psalm 24 says this, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. These were the teachings that these people would have been brought up with. These were the teachings that their teachers of the law were tasked with keeping in front of them and helping them to understand and helping them to see that if we want to see God, if we want to approach him in his temple, we need to have clean hands and a pure heart. Proverbs, the wisdom writer says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. That which comes up from within us and is, is our life is flowing out of our heart. And yet, to those people that Jesus was speaking to on the hillside that day, I don't think pure in heart meant what they thought it meant. Because if you look at the people who were tasked with teaching them about their heart, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, we know in hindsight that those were the people who did not see God. Jesus came as the perfect son of God, and he said, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And yet the Pharisees and the teachers of the law crucified him. So whatever they were teaching the people about being pure in heart was not what pure in heart really is, because Matthew 5.8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did not see God. So what was it that they were teaching, and what is it that it really is? Because the Pharisees had falsified the image of God into an eternal, small-minded bookkeeper. The Pharisees had taken the living word of God, the love story that is about a relationship with a God who wants to know us, who wants to save us, and wants to be present with us now and for all eternity, and they had turned it into a long list of rules, regulations, and details for people to follow, a checklist. They were the ones who clashed with Jesus the most often. When you find harsh words from Jesus, they were most often towards the Pharisees. About the Sabbath, Jesus let his disciples do things on the Sabbath that weren't according to Pharisaical law. Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and that wasn't according to Pharisaical law, and so they butted heads on the Sabbath. What had been created by God as a celebration of creation and a celebration of his covenant had become a checklist of do this, this, and this, and don't do this, 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 and on and on it goes. It had become a legalistic set of rules. They clashed about what to do about sin. As a matter of fact, they set Jesus up to set up tests and they brought him people who had been caught in sin. And said, what are you going to do about this, Jesus? And he broke their laws, but he didn't break God's law. As he said, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. Do you remember the story of the woman caught in adultery? Isn't it interesting that she was the only one caught when she was caught in adultery and there was no man in this trial? That tells me that she was set up. She was set up so that she could be a test for Jesus. And he said, let the one who has not sinned cast the first stone. And as you know, they all went away because they did understand that they were all sinful. And the only one left was Jesus. And can I say that he could have cast a stone because he was sinless? But he didn't. He didn't take the road of the Pharisees that said, I am higher than you. I have all this external piety and so I can condemn you because you sinned. He took the route of a loving God who said, I want to extend grace. I will not condemn you. And he said it to her and he says it to us. Neither do I condemn you. Condemnation is not God's way. He will convict us of sin and he will say, go and sin no more. Don't do it anymore. But the Pharisees were working according to this external image-keeping to try to look good more than they were concerned with loving God or loving others. They clashed with Jesus even on their rituals about eating and what's pure and impure and and how do you make sure that you clean something well and the vessel that you're cleaning. and, And matter of fact, um, Brennan Manning has a great quote about this. He's got a book called Abba's Child and a chapter called The Pharisee and the Child. There's some great insight into what this Pharisaical mind looked like. But up on the screen behind me, it says, Pharisees invest heavily in extrinsic religious gestures, rituals, methods, and techniques, breeding allegedly holy people who are judgmental, mechanical, lifeless, and as intolerant of others As they are of themselves. You know, I have Pharisee in me. My Pharisee has a checklist. Checklists are interesting to me. There are so many great lists in the Bible. And in the context of a love relationship with Jesus and how he designed us to live and how he wants us to live, they're great instruction. But when they become a checklist they become a problem. Many years ago, I met a man who was in his 90s. He had been a Christ follower his entire life, and he pulled out his list for me. And he showed me this paper that had a list of the fruits of the Spirit down one side, and all these teeny tiny little box marking the dates across the paper. And and what he would do is he would focus on one fruit of the Spirit until he could check off that he had said, I have lived this way for two weeks. At the end of every day, I could say, I was patient, I was patient, I was patient. And when he could say that for two weeks, he would move on to the next one. Patient, kind, self-control. He did tell me that what he found was when he was focusing on one, he would kind of lose way on the one above. And so that he just found that he just had to keep kind of working the list. And I was 19 years old and I thought, is this what I have to do to be a mature Christ follower? Is this what I need? Do I need to make lists out of all the instructions in the Bible and make sure that I'm measuring up? And yet even then I understood that fruit is something that comes from what is inside the tree. I can't take an apple and hold it up and say this is an apple tree because I'm holding an apple to it. That's an apple tree if its very lifeblood was made to grow apples and it's a healthy tree and it comes up from within the tree and apples are the fruit that is born on the tree. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. If we have the Holy Spirit of the living God inside us, then what fruit we bear is going to come out of that lifeblood. I can't choose to be patient or choose to be kind or choose to be loving or choose to be joyful unless God does that in me. I can choose to open myself to Him, spirit. I can choose to pray that he would bring those things to bear in my life, but I don't have the power to make that happen in my life, nor do I have the power to make myself pure. Only God can make me pure. Here's the Pharisee that rises up in me. I have a checklist At night, I have a mental checklist when I go to bed, and there's two columns, and the columns are good and bad, and down the side are all the things I did that day. And I kind of just make this mental note of, that was a good choice, not such a good choice. That was a good use of time. That was just not a good use of time. That was not a great conversation. I wish I could have a do-over. Man, that was really smart. I said good thing there. And as I fall asleep, I'm either leaning towards, that was a pretty good day, or, yeah, that was kind of crummy. I wish I'd have done better. And the problem is, that's a lose-lose situation. Because if I did good, then I fall asleep feeling proud. And if I did poorly, then I fall asleep feeling condemned. And neither of those is God's heart for me, because God's heart for me is that I'm loved. And that it's it's His blood that purifies me. And that while I long for my actions to reflect His glory and and His holiness, my actions are not what makes me good or bad. It's His love and His redemption in me. That, that brings me value. And so we need to put aside the checklists and set aside our judgmentalism and set aside the external appearance of good and find out what it is that really makes a pure heart. See, Jesus had some pretty strong words for the Pharisees and for the Pharisee in us. You find these words in Matthew chapter 23 verse 25. What sorrow awaits you, you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, (laughs) but inside you are filthy, full of greed and selfish indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. Have you heard about the red cup debacle? If you haven't, let me catch you up real quick. A rather popular coffee company decided to make their holiday cups just plain red. And it kind of blew up on Facebook. If you're not on Facebook, you have every excuse for not knowing this. It probably saves you an awful lot of time and stress. Because this one blew up. Because apparently it offended some Christians that the cups were just plain red. And as I read that, I just kind of went, wow. It made me sad. Because... When you think of the term Christian and the spectrum of people who claim that term, there are times that I would like to distance myself. And you might hear around here that oftentimes we talk about being a Christ follower. And I would say I'm a Christian, and yet I'm also careful to recognize that that does not mean that I believe everything that everybody who calls themselves a Christian believes And so knowing that we were going to talk about the pharisaical spirit and and a spirit of a religious spirit that brings a lot of legalism in, I thought, well, I better know a little bit more about this before I just start carrying a red cup around. And so I looked up at least one. I'm sure I didn't find all, but I looked up one of the quotes of one of the Christians who was offended by the red cups. Here it is. It says, by changing the cups from a design that in the past has included snowflakes, Christmas tree ornaments, and other overt references to the holiday, to a plain ombre red denies the great Christian heritage behind the American dream. She goes on to say, this also denies the hope of Jesus Christ and his story told so powerfully at this time of year. Woe be it for me to be judgmental or I have just done exactly the thing that's been done. And yet I feel like this is very educational for us because there are several things intertwined in this that can give us an idea of what this pharisaical external righteousness looks like and why it can get so twisted and confused in the body of Christ, even now as it was in the time of Christ. Because if you take a look at this, and we start at the beginning, you find that there's tradition wrapped up in this. There are snowflakes and Christmas tree ornaments, and can I tell you that those aren't in the Bible? but they're tradition. And when we get caught on tradition that isn't actually about biblical holiness and isn't actually about the heart of God, we are taking a step towards the Pharisee. Another one, there is truth wrapped up in this. If you see this bottom line, it says the hope of Jesus Christ is a story told so powerfully this time of year. That is truth. The hope of Jesus Christ is the only hope of the world. And it is a powerful story and this is a fantastic time of the year to remember that, to tell the story, and to use it as something that would be an attraction, that we would be the aroma of Christ to the world around us. There is truth mixed up and that's part of what what makes lies so much more powerful. It's part of what gives the Pharisees their power because the Pharisees are mixing truth in with their list of rules that they added to the truth. And truth with deception mixed in is a dangerous, dangerous pharisaical thing. And so we do have the warped theology here. Did you see it? The great Christian heritage behind the American dream. Can I just say that great Christian heritage and American dream are not the same thing? We do. We do have a great Christian heritage. That's true. But the pursuit of self-fulfillment is not the pursuit of God's holiness or the pursuit of a pure heart. And the other thing mixed in here is entitlement. There's this entitlement that some business should match their business practices to our faith journey and friends when we became a follower of christ we acknowledged that this was a faith journey and we acknowledged that this was a belief that we were choosing to believe and jesus said that the world would not understand us and even that the world would hate us for the thing that we believe so what makes us think that a business owes us snowflakes on their coffee cups And here is the genius of legalistic religion. It's making primary things secondary and secondary matters primary. We got things turned around, just like the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, and we made first things second and second things first. Here's another example. Obedience was the expression of the love of God and neighbor, Therefore, any form of piety that stood in the way of love stood in the way of God himself. What Jesus offered was not a new law, but a new attitude toward law based on being loving. Do you hear that? Any expression of piety that stood in the way of love stood in the way of God himself. The Pharisees had falsified the image of God, and Jesus said, no, We will not allow this image of God to be the image of God that goes down through all time. Because God is a God of love. First and foremost, he is love. And the one law that matters the most is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Any form of religious expression, of legalism, of trying to put on purity on the outside that gets in the way of loving people is not in the image of God. And yet, we are called to live holy lives. I was reading in Hebrews this morning, and it said, work to live holy lives. So which is it? Work to live holy lives or don't work to live a holy life? It's both. But we have to get first things first. First, we love God. First, we love our neighbors as ourselves, and out of what is inside will flow the kind of living that God shows us that there's many lists about. This is one of the tensions in preaching about the Beatitudes that we've talked about in preaching teams several times. How do you teach these things without making them a to-do list? Well, it's when you focus on the fact that the core is love, and you start with first things first, and out of that will flow the living that God asks of us. Other examples of getting things backwards. Think back to the Sabbath. The Pharisees made this celebration of creation and of the covenant into a legalistic set of rules. And God did say to rest on the Sabbath, but when you get it backwards, then you lose the gift that God has given. Or here's another. When we focus on pleasing God first rather than trusting God. Hear me on this one. We all want to please God, and yet if we make pleasing God our goal, and we follow that road out as far as it goes, it becomes a performance-based external reality of never being able to measure up to what God wants. I had a college professor who told me, I believe in God, I believe in the Bible, I want to follow God. But I know how dirty I am, and I know that I can't approach God. And so when I can get myself cleaned up, then I will follow God. Friends, that's a performance-based, I need to be able to please God in order to approach God, and it will never, ever work. And yet, if we will trust God... We will trust that he is the one who died and rose again on our behalf, that he is the one who can purify our hearts, that he is the one who can heal and transform us. We will begin to live a life that is already with God. We are already in his presence because we trust that he wants us in his presence, that he wants us to see him, that he wants to lead us, he wants to heal us, he wants to be with us. And when we trust that, we will find that we are living a life that is pleasing to him. And in the same way with purity... If we pursue purity at the expense of a pure heart, we've gotten the secondary things first and the primary things second, because first we need to guard our heart, and out of that will flow our purity. So the beatitude says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law didn't see God, they crucified God. So if it's not what they were teaching, then what is it to be pure in heart and to see God? So we look at the people who lived in that time and who walked with Jesus, who did see him for who he is, the son of the living God. And we find Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors were especially disliked because they worked for the Romans and they were allowed to collect more than the taxes that were required. And so they padded their pockets with the money of their neighbors. And Jesus called Matthew to be one of his disciples. And he saw Jesus for who he really is, but he had to lay down his entitlement to job and to money and approach Jesus with sacrifice. Zacchaeus was another tax collector who had to climb a tree to see Jesus go by. And Jesus said, come down for I'm coming to your house today. And in that encounter with God, Zacchaeus was transformed and he saw Jesus when he approached him with repentance and restitution for what he had done. Peter saw Jesus. Peter was this strong, self-sufficient kind of a guy, and he had to submit and approach Jesus on Jesus' terms, not in his own, I can figure this out, I can do this, I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and do this. Nicodemus saw Jesus. Nicodemus was the only teacher of the law who was recorded as laying down his pious self-righteousness and approaching Jesus with humility and teachability. Mary and Martha saw Jesus. They laid down their distraction and their busyness and they sat at his feet and they saw Jesus. Thomas saw Jesus, but he had to lay down his doubt and approach Jesus with belief. Mary Magdalene saw Jesus. She had to lay down her sin and approach Jesus in her brokenness. All through the New Testament, the woman at the well, blind Bartimaeus, the woman caught in adultery, the disciples, the lepers, the cripples, the children, his own family, they all saw Jesus for who he is, God. They saw God. And what was it about their heart? Well, it was that they came with an honest assessment of who they were. They saw themselves clearly. And in that seeing, they brought who they really were to Jesus And they came with repentance and they came with submission and they came with obedience and they came with hearts ready to follow and to be open to him. And in that place, he met them. He met them personally and physically and spiritually. And they saw him and they saw his healing and they saw his work and they saw his guidance and they wanted to live because of their encounter with the living God. And for you and I, if we want to be pure in heart... We've got to lay down our checklists and our striving and our trying to look good externally and our scorekeeping. Because you see, if it's all about us, if it's all about our perfection and our performance and our holiness, then we can't see God because we're so focused on us. And yet if we will hold our hands with open hands and entrust ourselves to God, we will find that we are living with the purity that he calls us to live in. What if being pure in heart isn't so much jumping to the purity, to the do the right thing, but being pure in heart is recognizing that pure means being cleansed with no deformity and no deficiency and no impurity. Like pure gold, there's nothing else except gold. Pure silver, there's nothing else except silver. Pure water, there's nothing else except for water. Pure heart, what is it that there's nothing else except And what if the answer to that is love? What if having a pure heart means being single-mindedly and wholeheartedly, pure-heartedly focused on loving and being loved by the living God? On loving and being loved by the living God. And out of that, guard your heart, for it is a wellspring of life. A heart that knows itself so loved that its performance doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at the end of the day if there's more good or bad in the column. I'm simply loved. And that when I love God, I will live the way that God is calling me to live. Luke 6.45 says, A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to know the state of your heart, if you want to know if your heart is pure, listen to the words that you say. Pay attention to your response in the time of crisis. What comes out from inside in the time of conflict? What comes out from inside when you're hurt, when you're wounded, when you're offended, when you're celebrating? What is coming out from inside? And that will begin to give you a picture of your heart. And if we are too busy, or too entitled, or too proud, or too insecure to notice the work of God around us, to pay attention to his presence, to to see him, that's another indication of the state of our heart. Because Proverbs 4.23 tells us, above all, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And yet... Proverbs also tells us, in 20 verse 9, who can say, I have kept my heart pure, I am clean and without sin. Isn't that, isn't that a tension? Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life, like do well by your heart. And yet, who can say, I have kept my heart pure, I am clean and without sin. I can't. You can't. None of us can say, I have a pure heart. It is only God that can make our heart pure. We see this in the Psalm of David where he is repenting, his prayer of confession after his sin with Bathsheba. It's Psalm 51, and we pick it up in verse 10, where it says, Create in me a, clean, a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Create in me a pure heart, O God and he wants to, and he can, and he has, and he will, and he will for the first time. If you've never turned to him and said, I need my heart cleansed, he will and wants to. That's what his grace is for. And if you've turned to him before and, 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 and five times or 50 times or 5,000 times, he wants to again, to come back to him and say, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I've read an author that says the reason Christians don't have joy is because we've lost the art of confession. See, we're afraid of confessing. We're afraid of looking at ourselves honestly because the feelings that rise up when we recognize our sin are often shame and guilt. But did you know that those don't have to be the feelings that rise up? We can approach the throne of grace with our confession and are pleased to be cleansed. And what can rise up is forgiveness. And we can be washed as white as snow. The Bible tells us that When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, confession should be the first place we want to go when we recognize our sin. Not to hiding, because the voice of shame and condemnation is the voice of the enemy. And he wants to keep us in hiding where we deny our sin. God wants us to quit denying our sin and bring it to him where he can forgive us and our hearts can be cleansed and purified and we can see him. Romans 3.21. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. By the way, we're making our way to communion. And what I wanna do with Romans is is reteach us what communion means. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I have sinned, and I fall short of the glory of God every day. And yet, all are justified freely by His grace. I am justified freely by His grace— through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So when we take the bread that represents his body and we take the cup that represents his blood, we are remembering the gift that he gave so that we could be made pure, a gift that we could not work ourselves into ourselves according to the law, and yet Jesus became the fulfillment of the law. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.